Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, our text today, the sending of the 70. When we begin our summer break from the verse-by-verse study of Luke's Gospel, we finished on June the 10th in chapter 9. And after that, we had our summer Bible conference where we studied the entire book of 2 Timothy over a weekend. And then the next Sunday, we began our Old Testament series on the book of Joshua. And I have to tell you that I thoroughly enjoyed our study of Joshua. I know there's much more left in that book that we failed to cover, and we'll come back to it again in a few years, I hope. I enjoyed the book of Joshua so much I needed a vacation. And so uh, I was off last week, and I always appreciate our godly pastors who rightly divide the word in my absence. They are a blessing to me. So this morning I'm refreshed, ready to go back to work here in the Gospel of Luke. So let's read the first 16 verses of Luke chapter 10. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the, in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now, up until this time, Jesus' ministry had been centered primarily in a region called Galilee. You know, the Sea of Galilee was in the northern region of Israel. And there were many villages, perhaps as many as 200, that surrounded this lake. And Jesus set up base camp in the city of Capernaum. And from there, he would go out performing miracles and teaching in these villages of the region of Galilee. But now there's a transition. Beginning in chapter 9, it says, He set his face towards Jerusalem. Remember, he had called out and appointed these 12 men we know as the apostles to travel with him. And uh, then he commissioned them to go out and preach and do miracles as well. 
And as he's going south towards Jerusalem, he takes the time to commission 70 additional disciples. You have to understand, it's getting to be the fourth quarter of his ministry. He has less than a year left in his life. He knows that the cross lies before him. And so he's multiplying his ministry. Now the commissioning of these 70 men is found only here in the book of Luke, not in the other three gospels. But it gives us a very clear picture into what it means to be a follower of Jesus and certainly one who takes the gospel with us. Perhaps the number 70 reflects in some way when Moses commissioned 70 men to represent him to judge Israel in his day. They were his forerunners in a similar way that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He now sends these men ahead of him into the villages that he was soon to visit. He refers to these 70 men as laborers. I think to remind them that they're not on a pleasure trip. They had work to do. So this morning I want us to look at five truths about these laborers. The first is the scarcity of laborers. Look at verse 2. It says, He was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I have read with interest lately about the apparent labor shortage in the transportation industry. In fact, there is such a shortage of over-the-road truck drivers that the government is seriously considering lowering the age of a commercial driver's license. Well, there may be a driver shortage in this country, but there has never been a shortage of lost people. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying the harvest of lost souls is plentiful, but the laborers who go out and reach those souls are comparatively few. Now that was true in Jesus' day, and it's true today. When I was a boy and I would read passages that said the fields are wide into harvest or that the harvest is ripe, I envisioned a world of people that couldn't wait to hear the message of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I realize now my naivete. Most people are not anxiously waiting to hear about Jesus. In fact, people are neck deep in their sin and rebellion and believe for the most part that all is well with their soul. Tony Richmond and a couple of other of our men arrived home Friday from a trip to India. He was telling me about the large cities that they ministered in and how they worshiped pagan gods. And one night he was kept up all through the night through one of these pagan ceremonies. And at six o'clock in the morning when the ceremony was finally over, the people took their God they had been worshiping all night and dumped him in the river. And they started worshiping a new God then. And they do that every year. They worship a God for a year, they dump him in the river, and then they worship another one. Now, that seems strange to us, and it's obvious to us that those people are in spiritual darkness and they're lost. But the truth is, right here in the buckle of the Bible Belt in Keller, Texas, we are surrounded every day with a similar degree of lostness. Almost always when we see Jesus or the New Testament writers use this image of a harvest it has to do with wrath. It has to do with judgment. Jesus is speaking compassionately about a lost and dying world. And from a human perspective, the sheer amount of lostness can be overwhelming. Nearly 8 billion people in the world today, we're told, the vast, vast majority of whom do not know Christ as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus says, here's what you do. You get together in committees and you complain about it. Not what he said, is it? He says, pray for the Lord of the harvest, which by the way is Jesus. Pray to Jesus that he would send more laborers into the field. 
I hope that's how you pray when you think about our church and its work here. We certainly have room for others to come be a part of our fellowship here. We certainly ought to first and foremost be evangelizing in our own homes, in our own schools, and on our own street. But beyond that, we are praying that God would use this church as a launching pad to send out laborers all over the world. This past couple of weeks, we had the privilege of observing an ordination service over in our sister church, our Mission Church Foundation, in which a young man in his 20, in his 20s, Mike Samuel, was commissioned to go out and preach the gospel out in Western Oregon. And what a, a joy that is to see in every generation the Lord raising up these laborers to send them out into the field. And yet we know that we will always be outnumbered. There will always be many more lost people than saved people. Jesus said it this way, the gate is small and narrow the way that leads to heaven and few there be that find it. And yet in God's sovereignty, we know that the only way that any will find that small gate and narrow way is through the evangelistic efforts of God's people. God has ordained it to be so. Now the second thing we see about labors, not only are they scarce or few, they are vulnerable. Verse 3 tells us the vulnerability of the labors. Look at it. Jesus says, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. <laughs> Can you imagine someone sending you on a mission and go, by the way, they're going to tear you up. You haven't a chance. You are comparatively a lamb going up against the wolves. And that's really what we are in the world. He, he understood and he was always open and honest about it. Jesus never did the bait and switch that we hear so much called evangelism today. Come to Jesus and He's going to make your life better. Are you lonely? Is your life unfulfilled? Try Jesus. That is not the gospel. Jesus said if you come to Him you have to take up your cross daily and follow Him. And He instructs everyone who would be followers of Him to count the cost. And the cost is high. He said I'm sending you as a sheep to the wolves, they would face hostility and danger. Nothing could be more vulnerable than a sheep before wolves. A sheep doesn't have sharp claws, he can't fight back, can't run very fast, he's got these short little stubby legs. And he doesn't have any armor, he's covered in soft wool. He has no defense mechanisms to speak of, and so he must depend on his shepherd. And that's the way the Lord Intended. He doesn't call us out to, to, to practice self-defense against a lost and dying world. He calls us out to be harmless as doves and yet wise as serpents. That is, we're not to be naive. We know intellectually and in every other way that we are in the minority and most people are going to be hostile to the things we have to say. But unfortunately, so many Christians I know get it just backwards. Rather than being harmless as doves and wise as serpents, they have a bird brain and they're mean as a snake. <laughs> and that's not the way it's intended to be. See, the world has always been hostile to God's messengers. That's why we're not to return evil for good. That's why Paul reminded us that uh, this battle, which is, is a battle, it's a spiritual one. The armor that he gives us is spiritual rather than literal. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It's won through prayer. Jesus rebuked two of his closest disciples, James and John, who didn't quite get this. I remember as they were traveling, this uh, Samaritan village 
was not hospitable to Jesus. And they said, Lord, do you want us at this time to call down fire from heaven? Wipe them off the planet? And Jesus didn't say, well, thank you all for thinking about me. He rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. And if you think it sounds unfair that Jesus sends us out as vulnerable sheep into a sea of wolves, Jesus said it this way, the servant is not better than the master. Jesus was met with hostility. Jesus was met with misunderstanding and slander, and so we can expect the same. That's what it means to be a laborer in the field. Thirdly, we do know that there are provisions for the laborers. I firmly believe that those the Lord calls, He provides for their needs. How does he do that? Well, probably not in the way that these men suspected. Look at verse 4. He says, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to the house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him, but if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Now, that series of verses that I read in, in rapid fire fashion was for that purpose, to, for you to see the urgency that's at play here. He's saying you don't have time to, to take your time and settle down, formulate a long-term strategy. He says you're to travel light. You're on a temporary mission, no money belt. That is, you're not going to be there long enough to have to make investments don't even take a bag. That is just the clothes on your back. He says, don't even take shoes with you. Now, he's not saying don't wear shoes. He's saying don't take a second pair. You're, you're there to make a statement, but it's not a fashion statement. You're there with an urgent message from your king. All of this was to indicate the urgency of the message to their listener. There's no time to waste. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he says, don't even take the time to greet another person on the way. Now, those of us who grew up in the South have a hard time with that. Don't greet another person in the way. We're taught to take your time and be hospitable, to wave at strangers when you pass them in the car. But Jesus says, don't greet a person on the way. Now, he's not indicating Christians are to be rude. But in the ancient culture, to meet a stranger was, was quite a ceremony that, that took place. There are all sorts of exchanges. Sometimes they had a meal together. He's saying you don't have time for that. And even in the ancient world, if a person was on an urgent mission, they were exempt from those rules of cultural hospitality. He's saying, I am exempting you from formality. Your task is too urgent to waste time. No time to settle down. Don't buy a house and set up housekeeping. In fact, don't even waste time moving daily from one place to another. Go to a place and search out a person of peace. That is someone who welcomes you into their home. And if they do, you say, God's peace be upon you. And there set up a base of operations and go out to an area that you can cover and come back to that place so that you can reach as many as possible in the shortest amount of time, I take it. The implication was not that they didn't have needs of food, clothing, and shelter. The implication was that God would provide the necessities of life as they were needed. 
but they were not to be picky. That's why Jesus says, eat whatever is placed before you. And no, that is not my life's verse. <laughs> this is a passage of scripture though that um, informed me and some decisions that I made early in my pastorate here um, that our church should not be in the business of fundraisers. I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. Jesus seems to be indicating that those who receive the message of salvation with joy will be so grateful for it that they will gladly support the mission financially. They didn't have to do outside fundraisers. And that's why we don't ask lost people here at First Baptist Keller to pay for kingdom work. The work and ministry of the church is funded and should be through the gracious giving of thankful people who've been born again. Now that's a sermon for another day. We'll come back to that. So we're talking about laborers. The fourth thing about these laborers, and I think the most important thing, is their message. The most important thing about Christians has never been Christians. It's the message of Christ, isn't it? Look at verse 9. He says, Heal those in the house who are sick and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. That's their message. The kingdom is here. And like with the twelve apostles, Jesus has entrusted these seventy men with miracle power. But the miracles were not ends unto themselves. Just as the miracles that Jesus performed, the giving sight to the blind and walking on water and even raising the dead were not ends unto themselves, but were to glorify the Father and verify the veracity of His truth claims. So, such it was with, with the miracle power and authority that He gave these 70 men. And yet Jesus knew the hearts of men that one miracle was never enough to satisfy. Jesus fed 5,000. They want him to feed 10,000. He raised one from the dead, why not a dozen? They always wanted another sign. Give us a sign to the point that Jesus says, this generation seeks for a sign, but the only sign they'll be given is the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the whale. Jesus was through giving signs. And I say that to say this, the message has always been more important than the miracles. And we live in a world today where people just like the people of Jesus today want a sign. They're wanting some sort of supernatural manifestation rather than to simply obey the crystal clear teaching of the Word. The Word is often set aside as less important or relevant is the key word today than some spiritual manifestation. Not what the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches that the message is subordinate, excuse me, that the miracle is subordinate to the message. That was the message of John the Baptist when he went out preaching. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message. Repent, he says. It's right here upon you. See, the Jewish people were looking for a Savior, a Redeemer, their Messiah. And the message was and is that Jesus is that Redeemer. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. And He's here. They are saying, in effect, He's, he's right behind us. Like John the Baptist, these 70 were forerunners of Jesus, going out to the villages that he would soon enter and saying, get ready, the king is coming. Don't miss it. Now, of course, even as Jesus was commissioning these men, he knew, because he's God after all, that not everyone would believe their message. 
just as not nearly everyone believed him when he preached the message. But he also knows in his sovereignty that some will. Therefore he entrusts these 70 with incredible authority. These men are in effect speaking for the king of glory. That's an amazing thought. But you know the scripture says of Christus today that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives wherever we go. My little boy Andrew is seven. First grade this year and it was finally time for him to start royal ambassadors here on Wednesday night. And he is uh, trying really hard to memorize his Bible verses and his R.A. motto. And uh, last night I said, let me hear your motto. He was really having a hard time, although it's not very long. Uh, he said, all right, here, here it is. We are ambassadors for Christ. And then he quoted the verse. That's right, isn't it? And it's not just small boys in our church that are ambassadors for Christ. Every Christian, when we go to work, when we go to school, when we're on Facebook, we are representing something much greater than ourselves, which is the kingdom of God. And we have that authority, and it's God-given authority. Look at verse 10. He says, but uh, wherever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus is uh, very quick to point out that some people, in fact, most people are going to reject the message. And most people don't like rejection. Do you like rejection? I'm not a fan of rejection. Jesus knows these men were not either. And so he knows it's going to be sometimes off-putting and even defeating to tell this message and no one responds to it positively. And, and even worse, many will respond to it negatively and be openly hostile to it. How are they going to handle that? And Jesus wants them to know they're not ultimately rejecting you, they're rejecting me because you represent me. And it puts us in mind of the Old Testament passage, I believe it's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You remember that Samuel was God's prophet, he was also a judge of Israel, and when he got towards the end of his life, his plan was that his two boys would take his place in judging Israel. But the truth is those boys were no count. Sinful young men. And so the people said, we don't want them to be judges over us. Give us a king. And Samuel said, no, you don't want a king. A king will be worse than any judge could possibly be. He'll raise your taxes. He'll conscript your children into the military service. You don't want a king. Yet they kept demanding, we want a king. And Samuel went to God and intervened and said, the people want a king, what shall I do? And God said, give them a king. They have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being their king. God knows the hearts of men. It's not you that they're rejecting, it's, it's the message that you bring. That men and women are sinners and need a savior. It's, it's not a popular thing to say. Wasn't popular in the Old Testament, wasn't popular in Jesus' day, and it's not popular today. He says, but you just speak the truth. You know, that's about 90% of the counseling that I do. Somebody asked me the other day, what do you say in counseling sessions? I said, well, it usually goes something like this. Someone will come to me with a problem, and I'll open the Bible and I'll say, what are you doing wrong? And they'll tell me, here's what I'm doing wrong. And I'll say, quit it. 
That's profound, isn't it? That's almost all I do in counseling. Find what you're doing wrong and stop it. And here is another example of that. These people didn't want to hear this truth because it was too simple. Stop sinning. Turn to Jesus. Repent. In fact, he's telling them once you have said that truth, it's not up to you whether or not they receive it. Isn't that freeing to know you can't save anybody? Our job is just to tell the truth. And he says, and if they reject that truth, here's what you do. You, you go take your sandals. That's how I know he was talking about a second pair of sandals earlier. And you, and you shake the dust out and say, this is a witness against you. Because every Jewish person knew that the custom was when you left the Holy Land, the nation of Israel, and you had to travel into Gentile territory to conduct business, you wouldn't want to pick up the soil from the Gentile countries and bring it back into the Holy Land. So you stopped at the border and you cleaned off your shoes so that you wouldn't defile the Holy Land. And the picture is crystal clear. Because you have rejected Jesus, you have become as bad as the pagans. You're no better than they are. In fact, we know that. Look what he says in verse 13. He pronounces a curse upon them. He said, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These were two villages in, in Judah. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than you. See, the worst sinners they could think of were the pagans of these cities. In fact, he really, the verse before says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for you. Now that was more than they could bear. The Sodomites were the most sinful people they could imagine. Those were the people that God sent fire from heaven to destroy them because they were so wicked. They were the um, picture in the dictionary next to the word wicked in the minds of these people. And to say you're worse than the Sodomites was something that would cut them to the core. And that's why Jesus cho chose that terminology. And then he says in verse 16, the one who listens to you, he's speaking to the 70, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. What he's saying is if you preach the truth and the people don't want to hear it, they have rejected me, the Messiah, and if they reject their Messiah, they have rejected their Father, Jehovah God. That's exactly true. Well, friends, what in the world does this have to say to people living 2,000 years later? Well, I think it has a lot to say. We, as believers today, have the authority to proclaim the good news of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To a lost and dying world. Not only do we have the authority, we have the commission. We have the obligation. We have the commandment to do so. But I think here in the words of Jesus, we find some truths about how to do that work that are very important. Number one, when we take the gospel to the nations, we must do so first and foremost compassionately. There is compassion in Jesus' voice when he says, the harvest is plentiful. That is the harvest of God's wrath is plentiful. But the laborers who are out there working are, are few. 
He's not saying obey me and the Great Commission out of some dead robotical obedience. Rather, we as Christians are to have genuine heartfelt concern for the souls of lost people. Those you go to school with, those you drive beside in traffic, those on your street. How many times we sit in traffic on 635 and bumper to bumper, viewing the people in front of us and to our sides as obstacles to our happiness. If these people would just get out of the way, I could get home. Rather than the reason we are here. Now you think about all the things the Lord calls the church to do. To worship, to fellowship, to praise His name. All worthy things, but all things we can do much better and perfectly in heaven. The one thing that He leaves us here that we can't do in heaven and won't do in heaven is to tell the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. There won't be any sin nor sinners in heaven, only the redeemed. So we are here primarily to take the good news. We must do so compassionately. Secondly, we must do so prayerfully. The task is too great. If we try to accomplish this task in our own strength, we will be overwhelmed almost immediately. So he says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send more laborers. See, we need reinforcements daily, yearly. So I look out week to week on our audience. I remember people that used to sit over here. They're dead. The Lord's called them home. Dear lady used to sit right there. She's gone. No longer here, no longer able to share the good news. But we're here. That mantle has been passed to us. And if, if we live a few more years, one day we'll be gone and we'll have to pass it to the next generation. We must pray that the Lord would continue to send us these reinforcements. And then thirdly, we must do this task thoroughly. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, to go to all the nations with the good news, and then the end will come. We say, well, Pastor, surely the gospel has gone to every nation in the world with the internet and so forth. But the truth is, he's not talking about political nations. He's talking about ethnic groups. And we know that there are hundreds of ethnic groups who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission has not been fulfilled. And then we must take the good news boldly. Because just as it did in Jesus' day, to take the gospel to wolves who are openly hostile to you takes courage. It takes courage to say things that you know will be unpopular in your culture. And it takes courage to go places you know you'll be in the minority and where your life may be in danger. And then finally, we must take the good news authoritatively, not timidly, not apologetically, but as ambassadors for Christ who have the authority and His seal upon us. We have a commission from our King. We're not on a pleasure, troop, a pleasure cruise. We're not there to settle down and invest in the culture. We are here with an urgent message. The same one as the apostles, the same one as John the Baptist, the same as these 70 men. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that in every generation you are calling out people. First for salvation and then to go. And I note 
the order in which you called these men. You said, pray, and when they'd prayed, you say, now go. And the truth is that when we pray that the Lord would send laborers, the person he often calls is the prayer, the person doing the praying. So Father, as we think about our neighbors and we are tempted to say, Lord, would you send someone over there to tell them about Jesus? Lord, the answer to our prayer is often ourselves. And so Lord, embolden us with the knowledge that you'll never leave us or forsake us, that you will provide everything we need to live a victorious Christian life. But help us, Lord, to count the cost, knowing that uh, we go out into a hostile world. Help us not, Lord, to vindicate ourselves or to seek our own revenge, but, Lord, to trust in you that you will eventually make all things right. Father, I thank you for the privilege that it is to be a part of what you're doing in the world. Would you be pleased, Lord, to use this church to take the gospel to the nations. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.